Hello everyone, this is Brother Michael. Um, the sermon that you're about to hear was from our Sunday morning service a couple of weeks ago. We were set up outside and because of the way we were set up, the recording is gonna sound a little different this morning. Uh, I've tried to work with it and do the best I can, but unfortunately the audio quality isn't great on this sermon, but um, we've gotten it as good as we can do. So um, I do hope that at least it's enjoyable and beneficial for you. God bless you as you listen. We'll be in Luke chapter 6 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. We've been looking at the kingdom life, um, specifically what it means to live in God's kingdom right here on earth. We've seen the kingdom ethic of love, a love that extends to all, especially those who don't deserve it. We've examined the kingdom ethic of justice, applying first to ourselves so that we might help others. We've looked at the kingdom ethic of righteousness, bearing the fruit of true righteousness that comes only from God. And today we're going to focus on a final kingdom ethic, the ethic of wisdom. So turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Pray with me. Father, I pray that your words would not fall on deaf ears, nor on hard hearts, nor on lazy hands. May we hear it, may we put it into practice, and may you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our goal through the series has been to see what it looks like to live life according to that kingdom principle, the kingdom of God. What does it look like as citizens of heaven right here on earth? What should our lives be like? Today, we look at an ethic that's more of a skill than a habit. It's not as much something you develop, per se, but something that develops in you. Just what does kingdom wisdom look like? In a world where disinformation and misinformation abound, where many people struggle to make very simple choices, where the immediacy of the moment often causes people to abandon long-term principles, wisdom stands out. And the truth is, wisdom has always stood out. Whether it was Solomon's discernment, trying to figure out which of the two ladies was really the mother of that baby, or whether it was the sons of Issachar, who according to the Bible had understanding of their times to know what Israel ought to do, wisdom has always been valuable. In fact, some of our earliest literature dates back to ancient Egypt where we see wisdom writings. Wisdom has always been valuable. But where does that wisdom come from? We look to Solomon in the Proverbs, and we read from Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
And then a little bit later in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So before we even get to the words of Jesus, we already find that wisdom comes from God. It's not something that's derived of man. It's not created by man. It's not initiated by man. It is merely received by men who are wise enough to seek it from its source. God alone has wisdom. And if we are to possess it, as the scripture admonishes us to do, as we know that we ought to, then we must acquire it from its only source. And with that in mind, let us hear with urgency the words of Jesus. Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus is coming to the apex of the sermon. He has turned our expectations of reality upside down by showing us the blessings inherent in what we often think of as curses. The blessings of poverty, hunger, mourning, and persecution. Those things that bring us closer to God by eliminating the false idols. The idols of riches and plenty, of self-exaltation and popularity far from our hearts. He's brought us along to teaching us the ethic of love. A love that's not limited to how we're being treated, but that overcomes hatred by loving those who don't deserve it. He shows us how to love our enemies and show mercy just as God loved his enemies, us, when we were in our sins and showed us extravagant mercy. He's helped us to climb the steep, treacherous slopes of the judgment by showing us the footholds of self-judgment, teaching us to climb the rocky crag. He points us to exercising judgments on our own faults first rather than ignoring our missteps. He shows us how to hook on to others who need a hand to help them up to have a sure footing on the mountainside rather than kicking them down. Just when you think you're about to the top of the climb, the way grows harder. As Jesus requires our fruitful living, bearing fruits of righteousness that come from God's work within us, the road winds further upward toward that summit as our fleshly nature starts to beg and plead for relief from the pain of our sacrifice. But Jesus bids us come yet further. And as we finally approach the mountaintop, we expect to rest at that scenic view of the kingdom, but we're surprised to learn that a thicket remains, a thicket of indecision, a thicket that brings us face to face with the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's like Jesus thrusts his hands directly into our chest and grabs our hard hearts. You know, this is one of only four times in Scripture that that double use of Lord, 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 occurs. One of them is in the parable of the virgins, but the other two happen in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, there it is again, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says that just because you call me Lord, and you do so emphatically, that, that's what Lord, Lord means. Just because you know the right words to say doesn't mean you will enter heaven. How many people think just because they prayed the sinner's prayer or walked an aisle or even been baptized that those things make them a follower of Jesus? 
But those things aren't what makes you a Christian. You must be born again. Just because you say the right words doesn't mean you're a child of God. You actually have to follow through with the work of the Father. But they said, we did God's work. We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works. No, even just doing good works isn't enough. Jesus rejects them on the basis of a lack of relationship. I never knew you. If you've been trusting in the words you've said or the works you've done, I've got bad news. Jesus isn't the Lord of your life. Unless he's the Lord of you. You must know him. It's not just what you say and what you do. It's who you know. Do you know him? Do you know Christ as your Savior? As your Master? As your Lord? The question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It gets to the root of indecision. We want a faith often that requires very little of our lives. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I'll assent. I will declare the proposition true. But don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to become anything. Don't ask me to grow or mature or change. But Christ calls us to a complete surrender. The greatest commandment. Do you remember what Jesus said the greatest commandment was? He was quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Heart. Soul. Might. Love God with all of you. Love Him with your will. Love Him with your being. And yes, love Him with your energy. Otherwise, Jesus isn't the Lord of you. You can't call him Lord and not obey him. So what does this have to do with wisdom? Well, much. Look in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock, and when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. Jesus shows us the danger of indecision and the wisdom of following creed with conduct. The wise man, according to Jesus, hears and does what he commands. It's not just enough to know the truth. You must also do it. James but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Isn't that interesting? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Notice who the fool is in James's passage. The fool is looking intently. At himself, he's so preoccupied with himself, he doesn't give attention to God's word. He, he cares not for the things of God. He's too self-engrossed, too proud to see anyone or anything else. He's the fool. But what does the wise one look at? He looks into the perfect law. He looks into God's law. He, he perseveres. He continues to look long and deep into the heart of God through his word. And finds himself not only listening to God, but acting on what he hears. That is a wise man. I think Spurgeon once said, visit many books, but live in the scripture. His point was, 
You can read a lot. That's great. But nothing, nothing more than God's Word. You see, the wise man, the one who is blessed, is the one who is deep, deep, deep into the Word and then doing it. That's what Jesus is telling us. He uses the example of a man who builds his house. He puts his house on a firm foundation of a rock. The effort he must have put forth. The digging, the sweat, the calluses on his hands, the bloody things from, from points where things scratched him. I mean, imagine the, 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 the toil and the work all to get to a bedrock that would not be moved. That's the man whose house stands firm in the travail of storm and flood. You want to build a house that will withstand the storms of life, whether it's mental problems like anxiety or fear, whether it's physical problems like disease or plague or pandemic, whether it's the storm of emotional pains like grief or persecution. You want to know who it is that will be able to stand the floods of life? It's the one who builds his house on the rock. Are you living your life on the rock? Not just saying, but doing what he says. Then Jesus shows the foolish man in verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Note the condemnation. He doesn't condemn the one who doesn't hear. He condemns the one who hears but doesn't do. His house, like his life, has no solid foundation. I wonder how many people today have seen their lives completely upended and have found that their life has no foundation. Oh, this is so captive to doing a myriad of activities. There was nothing worth basing their life on. They lived days and weeks and months and years just fighting the next fire, just doing the next item on their to-do list, just wasting away, believing that all of it was fine as long as they meet the next deadline, get the next raise, handle the next thing. How many people have had the extravagancies of life stripped away from them and now find themselves empty because there was nothing upon which their life was built? Is that you? Are you the fool who's heard the word of God and not obeyed its voice? It may not be long now, but your house will face a storm and your little house will be destroyed. God's calling you now. He's calling out to you. He's saying, before the crash, get out! Don't wait! Don't linger anymore in this way of foolishness. Trust Christ and obey Him. James puts it well. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? A couple verses later, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He concludes, for the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. What he's saying is, if it's real, genuine faith, it will produce works. Not saved by the works. The works come as a result of your faith. That's the wise man. If you really do believe in Christ, if you've really trusted him, then demonstrate your trust with obedience. Just saying the right words, doing the right things, even believing in the truth are not enough. Not enough alone. 
genuine wisdom combines faith and works. Faith in God that produces the works of righteousness, of justice, of love. That's kingdom wisdom. I realize we can't walk an aisle. I realize we can't necessarily come to an altar to pray. But I do want to give you a chance to respond. If you haven't trusted Christ, I want you to do that this morning. If you have, follow him in obedience. Do what he wants you to do. Whether it's something simple, spending time with him, digging deeper into his word, whether it's showing love to someone who's unlovable, whether it's judging your own faults and then helping someone else who struggles in the same way, whether it's bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, of kindness and goodness and faithfulness, self-control, those fruits of righteousness that come from the Holy Spirit dwelling within. Whatever it is that God wants you to do, you do that. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, you do what God wants you to do. He's putting something on your heart. You obey. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now that you would help me in a decision that someone here is facing. Maybe they're, maybe they're unsure. Give them the confidence to move forward anyway. Maybe they don't know exactly what to do. Show them the next right thing. Show them the next step they need to take. Maybe they do and they've just been running away from it for so long. Would you just stop them in their tracks? Would you just reach through their hard hearts? Retill the packed soil? Clear out the thicket? So that they see a way forward? A way to honor you? And would you help them overcome the fear? Father, we thank you for everything you do. We thank you for your mercy and your grace extended to us who certainly don't deserve it. We ask that in this time that we would honor you. As we move toward this communion, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in us. Father, we are so, so sinful and you are so holy. We confess those sins to you. Father, we rest on your promise knowing that According to your word, if we confess our sins, that you will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Father, we thank you that you are cleansing. We thank you that you are holy. We thank you that because of you, we can be right. Father, as we turn to this communion, I pray that we would honor you in our taking of it. Help us not do it lightly. Prepare our hearts. Remind us of what Christ has done and help us honor you in the taking. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.